we're in Luke, 20, Luke 14. And we are looking at verse um, 25 to 35 of Luke 14. There's a kind of parallel passage, and it's in Luke chapter 9, which David Woods has already dealt with. And I'd recommend for those who are like me that can't remember, or those who weren't here, to check it out um, on the audio web, what's the name, whatever it's called. Um, it's a good listen. His title was True Discipleship. The title I've been given is Counting the Cost. And some of the expressions, I would say the core expressions in these passages are quite similar. So let's read the passage together, Luke 14, 25. I should say this is hardcore um, Christ teaching. It's really difficult. And I don't think it's difficult to understand. I think it's difficult to take on board the implications of what the Lord is teaching. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. I've been living with this, um, these few verses for a few days now, and under the title of Counting the Cost, I feel that the Lord has been challenging me with a question. And the question goes something like this. Steve, what's the most precious thing in your life? I just pass on the challenge. Um, what is the most precious thing in your life? And there's a, a caveat. It says, oh, by the way, if it's not me, you need to rethink. It's hard because we have lots of things in our lives that are precious to us. I do. And the caveat comes back from what the Lord is teaching his disciples is that if it's not me, 
that's number one, then you really need to think. And let's leave that challenge hanging and we'll uh, come back to it. Is the Lord asking the impossible when we've got hopes, expectations, families, children? Um, Is it realistic for him to say, actually, all of these things that you quite rightly can make precious need to take precedence to me? It also begs the question, who does he think he is? Say that reverently. Um, why? Why would he make such a demand that um, I need to make him my priority? In a previous ministry in Luke, I, I started and finished with a quotation from Jim Elliot, that guy who was martyred when he was 24 years old by some South American uh, natives. And he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the reality is, all that is around us, however precious, even our own children, our own wives, husbands, our own family, certainly our own belongings, we cannot keep. That is inevitable. And it's so hard to get that perspective because in the here and now, they're what we care about. And Jim Elliot learned that lesson and many others have beside him. I need to learn it. That he is no fool who gives up what he knows he cannot keep to gain what he knows he cannot lose. I'd like to <coughs> reflect on things we know. The things we know before we come to this scripture. Um, true Christ, Christianity, I think we know, has two steps to it. The first step is called salvation. And um, both of these um, steps require a decision on our part. So the first step in true Christianity is come into the decision of accepting Jesus Christ as our saviour, step one. The second step, which is separated from the first step by time, and that time is different for every person and circumstance, sometimes it's minutes maybe, uh, unusual, uh, sometimes it's years. The second step is about making a commitment to discipleship. and. Um, Salvation is free, Ephesians 2, um, not by works, so that we won't boast, it's God's grace, by definition, it's free. Salvation is free, discipleship is costly, and that's what the Lord is teaching us. It's really interesting, it says, large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning, them, turning to them, he said, if anyone comes after me. Um, he must hate his father and mother, etc. Uh, a real high point in Jesus' ministry. How big is a crowd? I think it's thousands, maybe even tens of thousands. And they were following Jesus for perhaps a variety of different reasons. Um, for sure, many of them had him as the Messiah at this point. And they had their own 
understanding of what, what their expectations were of the Messiah. And he would be uh, a great politician and he would rescue them from um, this um, Roman captivity that they were um, suffering from. So crowds were following him. They loved the way he handled the hypocrites, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees. Um, he, he was masterful at um, being able to expose them in a way that was entirely um, right. Um, and if you were um, a person around that time and you, you saw the hypocrisy yourself, then here was a, a person who was worth following. Of course, they were fed by him. Um, they were healed by him. So lots of reasons to follow Jesus. And they were traveling with him. I think that's really interesting. They hadn't gone to meet him. They were kind of part of his band. And imagine how, how it would be if there were thousands of them. This is a big deal. Some of them, small proportion of them, were following him because they saw him as the Son of God. Um, they felt the call of God expressed to them through him. Come and follow me, he'd said to many of them. So we have this crowd of people and they've all got their own motivation and he turns to them and he delivers this really quite shocking um, statement that challenged the degree to which they, they were committed to him. I'd like to, in this two-step process of separated by time, I'd like to um, introduce a concept which is not new, but it's profound. If our salvation, that's the first step, decision to accept the Lord Jesus as our saviour, if that is true and credible, does the second step that's our decision to be his disciple. Does that become inevitable? Um, I don't think that God ever intended for there to be two steps and for us to take one without the other. Um, his expectation is that we accept his salvation and that we commit as his disciples. Um, I want us to try and think about our own experience of these two, two decisions that we made. And the challenge is, where are we up to in our decision process? Looking around, we've all gone to stage one at least, which is accepting the Lord Jesus as our saviour. And so if we were in the crowd, we would be acknowledging who he is, his deity. We would be acknowledging um, our appreciation of him as our saviour. Um, that's, that's a done thing and it's free. It's by God's grace and it's wonderful. But now we're in this point where the Lord is saying it's time to commit. And there's some conditions. It, it's a costly exercise. True salvation is we realise that discipleship is not an option, it's an obligation and an opportunity and the ultimate life experience. That I that's what I would say true salvation is about. 
So the very evidence that my life has been regenerated is that I have an appetite to be Jesus' disciple. If I don't have that appetite, and I just challenge, challenge us because it's a, a very sensitive area. We have perhaps relatives and friends who, um, as a child, accepted Jesus Christ as their saviour and there was never any more evidence that they were a Christian. Um, puts a question mark over the integrity of their belief and maybe that's not something we want to hear um, and I don't think it's something we can be dogmatic about only God knows but my challenge for us to think about is true salvation is the evidence of it where we realise that discipleship is not an option it's our heartfelt response in love to our appreciation of the love that God has shown us I would put it to us that true discipleship is counting the cost, making the commitment, and seeing it through to the end. True salvation is when we find discipleship um, compelling and we have to, to go with it. True discipleship, counting the cost, making the commitment, and seeing it through to the end. No, commitment is a funny thing. Um, Elaine's not here, but I don't know whether there are other people, but Elaine has jumped out of a plane with a parachute. I'd love to do that, but I'm not sure I would have the... I don't know whether it's courage or stupidity. Um, I did have the opportunity once, um, and that day the plane broke down. <laughs> So some kind of divine intervention, perhaps. But I'm imagine, imagining myself, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 feet up, and the, the parachute is strapped down, I'm all trained up and stuff, and I've got to make the commitment. And you commit, and there's no going back. And I just think that that's a simple illustration of Christian commitment, the kind of commitment that the Lord is looking for. That you make the commitment, and you can't unjump... <laughs> When you've, uh, when you've left the plane. And, you know, those who've had that experience and the parachute's out and now they're just enjoying the amazing experience of, um, I guess, flying through the air and all the views and all, and all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the Lord isn't asking us in our counting the cost, in our making the commitment and our seeing it through to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Let's go to Philippians 2, very familiar. But we're talking about true commitment. Now, the Lord is described as a disciple himself. We get that from Isaiah 50. It's that expression where it talks about him, his communion with his father, and he wakens my ear morning by morning as one being taught. And it's the Hebrew word for disciple. So I put it to you that the Lord was a disciple um, of his father in that sense and what does his discipleship, discipleship look like and we're thinking about counting the cost making the commitment going to the point of no return and seeing it through your attitude it's Philippians 2 and 6 your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have this (coughs) potted truth about the Lord's commitment to his Father's will, his commitment to us. And it's, uh, isn't that interesting? Um, who being in very, very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I love that expression, consider. It's, it's, it's counting the cost. It's reflecting on, is this thing worth it? And I just love that it's all done outside of time so it becomes a mystery to us Um, it's done in eternity past and there's consideration being given and his conclusion was not to consider equality with God something to be held on to but he made himself nothing and came to earth and there was no way that he would be unborn in that way and of course we we see him counting the cost, deciding we were worth it. <clears throat> There's a funny thing about how you put a value on something. And in my salesman days, we used to have this upselling technique. And it's strange because the stuff I used to sell, no one, no one here would want. <laughs> um, so you can't kind of relate to it. But you put the, the top of the range product and you take it with you. You stick it on the customer's table. And you talk about it, and you'd know in your mind what his budget was, which um, he couldn't afford. So you'd kind of talk it up, and you'd get him drooling <laughs> over the you know, amazing performance of this product. And then you'd say, so, so how much have you got? And he'd tell you his budget. Oh, sorry, you can't afford that. <laughs> and you, you bring out the, the kind of lower spec thing. And once you, you, um, you've kind of got him drooling over what he would really like, um, then the idea is to try and squeeze some more cash out of him. And they say that the value of something is only what someone else is worth to pay. There's a funny story of a, a plumber, and he, he call, gets called out on, a, on an emergency, and he fixes the problem, and he gives the lady his bill, and she looks at it and says, Really? <laughs> um, you know, I had a doctor here last week, uh, a private doctor, and his bill wasn't as much as that. And the plumber said, yeah, I know, I used to be a doctor. And then I decided, uh, I discovered I could be a plumber. <laughs> and the value of something is what someone is worth to pay, is worth prepared to pay. And it's just a precious thought, isn't it, in this consideration that the Lord Jesus is giving. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing and that's the valuation that he puts on our salvation and you know Hebrews 12 it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross the the prospect of winning us back um, was or resulted in the Lord Jesus putting that ultimate value on us so we're we're in the business in our ministry of exploring this idea of counting the cost and 
that's what we really need. We really need to do. Um, the Lord illustrates it with three points. Um, some really strong language, which hopefully we'll be able to unravel and get a proper understanding of. But in verse 26, he says you need to hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister. Um, this is about relationships. What he's saying is if you would be my disciple, like he says it the other way around, unless you can hate your relationships, then you can't be my disciple. Verse 27, he talks about carrying a cross. If you can't, if you're not prepared to carry a cross, then you can't be my disciple. And in verse 33, he talks about giving up everything. And that's um, riches, I would say. So three R's. Relationships, that's um, hating our family. We'll come back to that. Carrying our cross, I'm going to say, is about our rights. And again, we'll explain <coughs> that in a second. And then giving up everything is about our riches. So counting the cost is about relationships, rights, and riches. We perhaps find ourselves in, in a situation where we try and take a scripture like this and restate it so that it's more palatable to us. What was the Lord saying when he was saying to the crowds, you, you know, you can't be my disciple unless you, you hate your family. So here's me looking up the word hoping that actually there's a, there's a variation on hate and it, and it uh, somehow is less strong, but there isn't unfortunately. He was using um, extreme language to make an extreme point. So hate literally means to detest. So we can't tone it down um, by some clever trickery with the Greek. But we do have to look at it alongside other scripture and get rid of any apparent contradiction. So um, the Lord, the law says, honour your father and mother. Two incompatible things. You can't honour someone and hate them at the same time. So I do think, and it's not in an attempt to kind of water it down, it is one of those examples of hyperbole where strong language is used to emphasise the importance of it. And he's not saying, um, actually, when I say you need, I need to be your number one, He's not saying, I don't really mean that. Um, he's saying, actually, I mean it. Uh, I need to be number one in your life. And if I'm not, then you, need, you really need to rethink. And to emphasise the point, I'll say, unless you hate all these other things, um, and it's kind of polarising the situation, unless you hate it, then you, you kind of miss the point. Matthew 10 is a parallel scripture and it, it does support what I've just said, I think. Matthew records it in a slightly different way. Actually, two things are different. In Matthew's account, he's addressing his disciples. In um, Luke's account, he's addressing the crowd. Um, and then there's slightly different language used. So anyone, it's Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it 
So using this hyperbole um, technique, um, using extreme language to polarize the, the two ways we could go, he's saying, really, if anyone would be my disciple, I have to be number one and no compromise. And even all those other things that, that you have a right to love and you should love, they need to be second to uh, my, my place in your life. I was trying to think of another illustration and when he says you need to hate your father and your mother, the verse that sprung to my mind is about marriage. Um, so a, a man must leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. That's interesting because, um, of course, the relationship with the father and the mother continues, but he now has a more, a more important one. I'll say it brutally, that's the way it is. And his priorities have been reset by now having uh, a wife. And it just strikes me that that's perhaps a, a practical way that we can view this. Um, if you want to be my disciple, then Jesus was saying to his disciples, all of your priorities is, is kind of changed. And from a relationship's point of view, even though you, know, um, you have obligations to family and children and stuff, actually I'm number one. Come back to my original challenge, and I, I do find it really personally difficult. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we all do, um, especially those who've got little children. Because it's, isn't it perfectly acceptable to say that my children are the most important thing? And how unchristian would it be if we were to suggest that actually they're not? Well, I think that's what the Lord is saying. That um, being a, a true disciple of his requires us to revisit what our priorities are. It's hard teaching, but I think it's what he expects of us. We asked the question earlier, but you know, what, why would he say that? Is this some kind of ego? You know, is this something that he's expecting of us for himself? Of course not. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our commitment for his own good. It's all about um, fulfilling, living the fulfilled life that he intends for us to live. And it's almost as though put me as your priority and all those other important things, you know, seek ye first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. And it's not as though put God first and you know your wife and your family and your kids will all be fine in the world will have trouble that's a guarantee but it is the best possible life we can live and it's a fulfilled life and it's um he's our creator he knows best and he's saying if you want best the best thing for your family and your children and your parents um then really you need to follow me and to follow me means putting me at number one. So counting the cost, the first one is relationships. The second one I'm going to suggest is rights. This is verse 27. It's about carrying our cross. This is the um, similar to the verse that's used in, in Luke 29 that David Woods spoke about. 
Anyone who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. At the time, the significance of, of a cross, really serious. It was, I don't know how common crucifixions were, but the, the only thing it can point to is at that time they would see condemned prisoners carrying their cross or part of it on the way to the place of execution. And the Lord was um, saying to his disciples, and remember this is pre his own crucifixion, so they would only know it from a criminal context. And he was saying to them, you, you need to, if you're truly my disciple, you need to take up your cross, carry your cross every day. We're trying to think of um, what that really might mean. And um, in David's ministry, I think quite rightly, he, he talks about giving up our rights. Um, someone who's condemned to death by crucifixion has no rights. Um, it, it's all over. It's just a matter of, of time. And of course, what we're saying in a discipleship context is we're handing over all our rights. It's, a, it's that priority thing again and saying it's, uh, it's not what I want, it's what he wants and he has priority. But actually I think in our, in our day it has an additional significance because we do know more about the cross than the disciples did at that time. And I wonder whether part of counting the cost is our being prepared to identify with him. So people these days wear a cross around their neck and maybe for the most part it's a meaningless piece of jewellery. But for some it's a, a symbol of reverence for Christ, for Christianity. It's the, their choice of a, of a way to do that. And the cross has taken on in our culture and in our timing a completely different significance than it did in those that it had at this particular point. So I just wonder whether we could use this and say that part of us taking our cross, taking up our cross and carrying it every day, is every day identifying ourselves with him. Now isn't that true discipleship? That people know that we're a follower of the, follower of the Lord Jesus. Um, in Luke 9 it says, take up your cross daily. And it, I would just put it to us that it's a, it's a daily exercise. I don't know whether we've ever thought of how the Lord Jesus was taken off the cross. And this is speculation. But um, I have the impression that there was a, the vertical post was already there. He was nailed to the cross piece and that was somehow um, hoisted up and put in position. I don't know, you've, you've seen that illustration, I'm sure. And then you've got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and they go and appeal to have Jesus' body and they're, they're doing the thing in reverse. So they're carrying his cross and bringing it down and gently removing him from it. What a, what a, a service that they provided to him. And it, it just appeals to me that um, Nicodemus, a secret disciple, went to see the Lord Jesus in the dark because he was frightened about being associated with him. He's now carrying the cross and in a very public way identifying where his allegiances lie. So 
in our Christian life there should be no anonymity. We can't be anonymous when it comes to um, nailing our colours to the mast if we can have a, a mixed metaphor. We take up our cross and thereby demonstrate our commitment to him. And the last point, we're saying um, relationships, um, rights, and the last point is riches. And in verse 33, he says, um, after his brief par- uh, two parables, he says that unless you give up everything, you're not able to be my disciple. It's really interesting, isn't it, that he has two very short parables that he uses to illustrate. And if you follow the logic, it's quite, it's quite difficult to work out exactly what he's getting at. Um, because he says, if a man decides to build a tower and doesn't count the cost first, he might find he can't afford it. So he should stop. And then if a man um, is challenged by an enemy and he needs to count the cost and decide, you know, what are the odds of me winning this battle? And he might decide not to pursue the battle. In other words, he can't afford it. I don't think for a minute that the Lord is looking around the crowd and saying, if you come after me, if you want to be my disciple, you need to check first that you can afford it. (laughs) Because the implication would be, that some there can't afford it. And I've said, and I think it's true, that true salvation means we, we recognise there really is no choice. If we appreciate his love for us the way he, the way he wants us to and the way we should, then uh, discipleship is a must. So the way I would put it is it's not counting the cost and deciding whether or not we can afford it. It's about counting the cost and deciding whether we're prepared to make the investment. And the investment is our relationships, being prepared to sacrifice our relationships or make them uh, less important than they otherwise would be. It's about our rights, having our allegiance and our identity with him. And it's about our stuff. And the, the two illustrations, one's about money, building a tower, have you got enough money? And the other is about I think strength, power, influence, authority, all of those things, um, that would be the king with his army. And it just seems to me that the Lord is appealing to those who, who are would-be disciples, that you need to recognise the investment that's needed if you're going to be a true disciple. And it includes your stuff, your um, material possessions, as well as your power of influence and all of those other things. So, challenge, again, for me, to my heart, comes back to the question, so, Steve, what's the most important, what's the most precious thing in in your life? And it really does need to be him. And I, and I don't think we can dress it up any other way. And my prayer has been that that is what we'll take away uh, from these difficult but profoundly challenging verses. I'd like to say a final word about salt. It's the last um, paragraph in our reading. And it comes after the Lord challenging the crowds and his disciples about what it takes to be a disciple. And then 
Almost out of the blue, he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It reminds me of the verses in Revelation, and we'll finish by uh, reading those in a second, to the church in Laodicea, where the Lord Jesus is saying to them, you're neither hot nor cold. And hot is good, and actually cold is good. Um, Lukewarm is useless. It's neither one thing nor another. And I think this is the, the message that the Lord is giving about uncommitted disciples. We were saying that there's two steps in discipleship or in true Christianity. One is salvation and the other is moving on to this commitment that he's asking for, which is discipleship. And it was never God's intent for us to have one without the other. But the consequence, I put it to you, of having one without the other is we're pretty useless. Useless for him. If we're just saved people, I, I say that, if, if we've sincerely accepted the Lord as our saviour but we have no life to reflect it, then of course we know from, from many, many other scriptures that our salvation is eternally secure. But in this life, the reason why he's saved us and giving us a life to live is to honour him. And we're like salt that's lost its saltiness or water that's tepid. It's neither hot nor cold. Let's listen to what he says in closing. Let's listen to what he says to the church in Laodicea. It's Revelation 3 and 15. He says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. In our statement about true Christianity being two steps, I think the second step, first step salvation is a once and forever, one-off decision, irreversible, irrevocable. The second step, I, I put it to us about commitment to discipleship, is a daily thing, it's an ongoing thing. And we have this lovely conclusion in that Revelation 3 scripture about the Lord appealing to us for communion. And that surely is a daily experience. And it's a challenge for us to, whatever age we're at, whatever our level of commitment has been in the past, to revisit the cost and what we're prepared to commit for the future. And he's there to assist us in every way as he seeks to have communion with us. Shall we pray?